0: Lord Jesus, um, as we gather like this as the church, um, may we remember, Jesus, that we come here this morning uh, not ultimately to serve. We don't come here this morning ultimately um, with our own gifts. We come this morning um, with our fears. We come with our doubts. We come with our weariness. We come with our joys, and we come with our sorrows. And we come here to be met again, with the good news of the gospel. That you, Lord Jesus, have given everything so that we can be granted reconciliation with you, God. Granted new life in you, granted peace, uh, granted um, restoration in you, and you are the only place that it can be found. God, for, for those of us that come in here this morning feeling a little bit more broken than usual, a little bit more downtrodden than usual. May they find hope in you, Jesus. God, those of us that come into this room filled with joy, filled with life, filled, um, excited about what you are doing in and through this church in and through um, the gospel here in the city of Fayetteville, God, may our joy overflow into others. May that joy be shared with others here. God, I pray this morning, as we open up your word together, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear from what you would have us to see in your word. We pray this together in Jesus' name, amen. You can open up your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 43. That's where we'll be this morning. This morning we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and um, at long last, Joseph has now been reunited with his brothers. If you've been tracking with us uh, through this series in Genesis, it has been a long and winding road, but now we find ourselves with Joseph being pulled up out of the pit, placed in a position of prominence, and now his brothers finding their way back to him in Egypt. But they don't know that they have engaged with their brother quite yet. Joseph, uh, we, could see, we saw last week that Joseph, in some ways, has forgiven his brothers. We believe that that forgiveness is real, but he, that doesn't mean that he trusts them yet. Over the next weeks, we'll see Joseph is testing the faithfulness of his brothers are his brothers the same brothers, uh, are they still doing this in the, stuck in their same old ways of willing to make a quick buck by betraying their other brothers, by giving in to sinful patterns, by doing and acting in deceitful ways? And so we left off last week, with Joseph sending the brothers back to their father, Jacob, and, um, and make, but not before taking one of their other brothers and keeping him there, kind of holding him hostage, his brother, Simeon. So the brothers show up to Jacob, they open up their sacks, and they all are horrified with the fact that all their money has been placed back in their bags. And Jacob is absolutely horrified by the fact that that Joseph, even though they don't know it's Joseph yet, is demanding that they bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, back before they can ever bring food, and that Simeon is being held captive. So let's go ahead and dive into Genesis chapter 43. We'll start In verse 1 and read down to verse 15 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten grain they had brought from uh, from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you should not see my face unless my brother is with you. And if you We'll send your brother with us. We will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him in answer to these questions... Could we in any way know what he would say? Bring your brother down. And Judah said to Israel's father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we, you, and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand shall you require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, and let him bear, let, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that it had returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May you send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, I am, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's we'll stop there for now. So the infamous phrase begins this chapter, "So there was a famine in the land." And whenever that pops up in the, the book of Genesis, what happens? Where do you go if there's a famine in the land? It's happening again and again. Where are we going? Egypt, right? We're going to Egypt again. Every single time this happens in the book of Genesis, there's a famine in the land. You know what to expect next. Someone's about to go down to Egypt, but there's a problem, right? If you go back down to Egypt and the brothers are going to go there, they have to reckon with Joseph's test, right? Are they going to make good on bringing back their baby brother? It is a prerequisite for them actually buying grain before Joseph again. Joseph says, you're not going to see my face unless you bring your brother with me, uh, with you. And there's a problem here. Jacob's got a really firm grasp on this. He's the baby. And everyone knows what happens with the baby, like you protect the baby. And in particular, he's the baby boy who is the only remaining son that, that Jacob knows about, who is the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Uh, his wife who died in childbirth, giving birth to this son, Benjamin. He's the new favorite son. And, and we kind of forget in all of this mess that Jacob kind of doesn't even really mention all that much that his other son, Simeon, is being held hostage. He gets kind of like left by the wayside. But like, I kind of feel bad for Simeon. Like, I don't think he's sitting around like playing cards with Joseph in Egypt, right? He's, he's, this is probably a really bad situation he finds himself in. But we get a surprise in the character of Judah. Judah then speaks up. He takes responsibility, which seems to be like pretty out of character for Judah. Let's look at verse eight again. Judah says to Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back from you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we'd have returned twice. See, what, what Judah's doing here is surprising for a number of reasons. First, we know that Judah has kind of shown himself to be a dirtbag, right? Remember the whole Judah and Tamar story? That was a mess. Even before that, Judah, it just doesn't come off as a, a very trustworthy character, but then here, here he is kind of standing up, taking responsibility and saying, actually, put the blame on me should this thing go wrong. See, what I think's going on here is, is, is surprising for us, but also it maps perfectly on what's gone before it in the story so far. Remember back to when Joseph was thrown into the pit, first thrown into the first pit. He's been betrayed by his brothers. They're trying to figure out what to do with him, and then Reuben pipes up and says, hey, I've got this plan, let's let's make sure we don't kill him, right? And Reuben has this plan of how he's gonna rescue his brother and he says it before all the brothers but then Judah follows that up with another plan. Judah then says his plan and they follow through with that of selling him into slavery. So Jacob was rescued from death by being sold into slavery by the acceptance of Judah's plan. This happens again. At the end of chapter 42, what do we have? But Reuben giving another plan, it being heard but not followed up on, and now we have Judah's plan being accepted here. It seems like we are to see that Judah is moving from selfishness to selflessness. But that's not the biggest problem that they have facing them here. If they are going to get food, they've got to get Jacob to let go of Benjamin, to let him go with them, to go down to Egypt. It seems like he's not going to let him go. But after Judah's speech, we get a counter speech by Jacob. Jacob says this kind of little speech to his sons. And at first, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, man, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're going to go all out. He wants to show extreme generosity to this man who's holding his son. He, and he lists out this long food uh, uh, list of food and kind of presents to bring before him. And if you're like me, I'm asking the question like, well, hold up. I thought the whole purpose of going to, down to Egypt was because we don't have any food. Like, what you doing all this food? Like, where, if the, all the presents are food uh, or food-related items, why can't we just eat that stuff and be happy, right? Well, it's kind of like this. Um, I don't know if you've had a, a dish uh, that's like the main course is like the kind of meat and potatoes of the dish and everything else is kind of spices on top, maybe like pad thai, right? Just imagine you're eating like a, a bowl of pad thai um, if, and only the things that you were eating on it was just the peanut crumbles on top. And only the spices that you put into the dish. But you were missing the chicken and you were missing the noodles and you're missing everything else that goes into the dish. All of these kind of gifts are, are, are kind of preserved items that you would only eat in very small amounts. These are like delicacies that you would keep in your pantry. If I went and opened up your pantry door and all of it, um, had, it was just all stacked from floor to ceiling with bread, I'd be like, what's, what's going on here? You need some spices going on. You need to spice up your life. That's the gifts that he's bringing here. It's just the spices. It's just the things that wouldn't have uh, kept them alive for very long because these were only just delicacies. They're missing the bread here. And uh, look at verse 14, though. Maybe you noticed this on the first read, but Jacob then appeals to the character of God as to why he's going to send Benjamin here. He says this, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send you back after the other brother, Benjamin, and ask for me if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. See, Jacob is trusting God Almighty here as the only one who has power to grant mercy and give them favor with this second only to Pharaoh ruler in Egypt. And I think Jacob actually sets for us an example to follow here. He certainly isn't perfect, but he demonstrates an acceptance of his situation. Not only acceptance, his inability to change things. And finally, he accepts the offer to trust God with the things that he's fearful of. Let's pause here and consider something together. How do we often respond when we are put in a situation, when we're put in a situation with things that we cannot change, when we are unable to change our circumstances. Now, I think most of us kind of on any given day are going to fall into one of two categories, right? And these are culturally dominant narratives, The, the doers and then those that despair, right? Those of you that are presented with something that you can't change, I mean, you're just going to like, Uh, you're gonna quote Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. You're gonna rage against the dying of the light, all that. You're, You're gonna say, we can do more here. We can pull ourselves together. There's always something we can do. Like your favorite superhero is Batman because he's a human fighting like against all these other superhero powered people and it's always a losing battle. He's a human. He's gonna die eventually. But you're like, that's my guy. He never gives up. That's my guy. He's always gonna follow through with it. Or maybe you're those that just despair, right? You're like, along with the so-called great philosophers, you just, you're all too willing to kind of jump down and throw yourselves down the rabbit hole of despair and anxiety and depression because well, we might as well not do anything, right? Like, we're powerless against the system. Like, don't stress yourself out, you know, too much because it's just all too overwhelming. Now, on any given day, I might fall of. In, in one or two of the, those camps. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yes, I completely identify with one of them and I have no idea what it's like to be the other one. Maybe it's just definitive for you. But here's the common root that both of them share. It's fear. The common root that the doers and those that despair, in their doing or in their despairing, it's their fear. They're driven and ruled by fear. Fear of maybe loss. Fear of not being enough or not having enough or fear of not being able to change. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we can find ourselves believing one of those two ultimately hopeless narratives. But those of us who are followers of Jesus here, we've got a better story to tell. We've got a better story than just doing or giving ourselves to despair. Instead of placing our value in our own ability to figure things out and work hard or just giving ourselves over into a spiral of despair, we cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is this, is that in Jesus, although we are dead in our sins, we're dead in the ways that we failed against God and others, and we're actually powerless to change that, God being rich in mercy, as, as God Almighty has brought us to life, through what Jesus has already done for us. See, Jesus died for sin in our place so that we could be reconciled back to God. He has done the work. See, the gospel speaks to both doers and those who despair with an actual word of hope. God is offering you unshakable hope in what he's already done for you, something that's already been accomplished. He has done what we could never do ourselves. He has changed what we are powerless To change ourselves, those that despair, that know that they're powerless, can find good news in the gospel. Those who just want to do more can find good news in the power of the gospel that it's already been done for you. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. These words will come up on the screen for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, that is good news for doers and those who despair. And as we return to the story, we remember the position that Jacob is being placed here. He's challenged by his circumstances. Challenges either to trust here or to just try to do more or just despair. What is Jacob going to do for us? What are we going to see him do? I think that in light of what what he says about God, that he names God Almighty as the one who can grant mercy and grace before this man, he has rooted his doing and his believing in his trust in who he knows God is. He trusts, he asks God for mercy and he sends his sons down to Egypt. He does what he can. He gives these gifts, these delicacies and I think this is righteous generosity here but then he also accepts that this situation is ultimately beyond his control. He can't bring about his desired result. He has to put this into the hands of God and just trust. He could be grieving the death of his sons very soon. He could never see his sons again because of the power of this man in Egypt that he does not know. He accepts this reality, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Ultimately, he trusts God and he sends his sons. Let's pick up the story in verse 15. Verse 15 continues the story like this. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, make it ready. The men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid that they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks at the first time that we are to be brought in so that they assault us. And fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Don't touch my donkeys. So they went up to the steward of the house, and they spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, oh, my Lord, you hear him pleading here. We come down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and then each man's money was at the mouth of his sack, and the money in the full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We brought the money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. See the response here by the steward. He replied, peace to you. Like, calm down. (laughs) Calm is cool, man. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in their sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. How relieving must that have been. And when the man had brought the men to Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder and prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house with them the present that they had with them and bowed down with him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke us, he's still alive. They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They lifted And he lifted up his eyes, Joseph did, and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest, according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much As any of theirs. And they drank. They were merry with him. So, at the beginning of this passage here that closes the end of chapter 43, they have this arrival back to Joseph. It's like this fast forward scene, you know, where it's like maybe the scene was on pause for a second. It's fast forward. They're standing before Joseph. And they're standing before Joseph, and what did they get? but news that Joseph is inviting them over. Uh, we can kind of think of it like this. Uh, maybe you've recently got a text message from a friend, the dreaded, hey, can we talk? One of those, or like, hey, can we meet for coffee somewhere uh, to talk about something? And they don't tell you what they actually want to talk about. They just give you the social anxiety of having to worry about it for days until the thing happens, right? Right. Maybe you've got one of those emails or text messages. I mean, I can feel the social anxiety building in the room. Like, maybe you're one of those people. Like, stop doing that. Like, don't do that. Just tell people what you're going to do, like, what you want to talk about. It'll, it'll, it'll ease so many burdens. This is what's happening with the brothers here. They just, All they know is they're getting invited over. They don't know it's for dinner. They think they're going to be made slaves here, right? So when they show up, uh, not only are there a ton of cultural differences, but they're absolutely terrified of Joseph. Like their legit fear here is that they're going to be tricked and things taken from them and then be kind of uh, sold into slavery like their brother Joseph was. They're convinced he's just inviting them over so he could take advantage of them. So they just kind of decide that honesty is still the best policy and they plead their innocence uh, to Joseph Stewart. As they plead their innocence here, you kind of see the end of it where the steward's saying, like, like chill out, guys. Like, peace to you. It's, everything's cool. It's okay. And then he says this in verse 23. Take a look at it. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So this Egyptian steward of a house has not only been employed by Joseph, it seems that he's been discipled by him. He's kind of been in on this story from the beginning. He he equates even the command of Joseph to put the money back into the sacks, being in on it, with God's will to, to, to rescue and redeem and restore and give blessing to these brothers. This is incredible. This is incredibly good news. And, and, and after that, he brings Simeon out to the brothers. He relieves all of their fears that Simeon is just going to be held captive, and they're going to be made a captive like he is. I mean, how much better could it get for these guys? They get good news. They get um, their brother brought back to them. Uh, they get like the, they're not only going to get uh, be made slaves, but they're going to be served. And, and what happens after this is they're given water. Uh, all of their animals are cared for. They're being cared for. They get a bath. Could you imagine how bad these guys must have spelled coming all the way from the land from where they are at down to Egypt before Joseph? And amazingly, they respond to this generosity in kind. They get ready to have a meal with Joseph by preparing the present sent by their father to Joseph. But Nothing could prepare them for what's about to happen next. So they show up ready for a dinner with Joseph. They prepared the meal. They they come and they prostrate themselves before Joseph, but it seems like Joseph could care less about all these presents. The real present, the real thing that he'd been waiting for and longing for and desiring was in the room with him. He inquires about his father, that he's still alive, but then his eyes fall on his little baby brother, his brother that was his full-blood brother, the only other son of Rachel, who Joseph would have been alive to know that she died in childbirth four. He sees Benjamin, and his heart swells with emotion, overflowing joy to be able to see the brother that he probably thought he would never see again. Sees Benjamin, pronounces a blessing on him, and he can't help it, but he has to run out of the room to find a place to weep, to find a place to cry out emotionally to God could you imagine the joy that, that, that Joseph would have had in seeing his little baby brother being filled with emotion in that moment? See, maybe of us, some of us, it's been a minute since we've had like whole body cry where, you know, you know what I'm talking about, it's an ugly cry, where you don't care what you're actually doing yourself, and so you need, just need to get alone to be able to do it. Maybe that's, maybe that's been something that's been common for you, or maybe you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't even have a category for that level of emotion. Maybe for some of us in the room, it's like, yeah, Joseph is just one of those guys who's in touch with his his own emotions. I'm just not an emotional guy at all, right? I would argue for some of us, though, if you don't have a category for being able to engage deeply and emotionally with what's going on in your life, you may be taking your notes on what's manly or acceptable from culture and like a John Wayne figure rather than actual Jesus and the God of the Bible and the examples that were given within it. Because guess what? Jesus walks in these very same footsteps as Joseph, showing for us what perfect humanity would look like. And guess what? When Jesus is, engages with really broken, like sad situations, you know what he does? He weeps. Jesus weeps in sad situations. He models for us that as followers of Jesus, life following this God is not one of, that's devoid of emotion. It's not one that's where we have to section those things off. We get to engage authentically with this God and with what's going on in ourselves. Now, certain we are not ruled by those emotions, but we can engage honestly with them. So, at the end of this, Joseph cleans himself up, comes back to dinner, And says, Serve the food. And in so doing, he's initiating the second test for them. If the first test was to see whether or not they would abandon their brother, the second test was testing whether or not they would be jealous of their brother. See, Joseph, as they're seated, the brothers come to these tables. The Egyptians are sitting at one table. Joseph is sitting at another table. And then as all the brothers sit down, they are lined up perfectly and seated perfectly according to their birthright and their age. And they're absolutely amazed by this. They're kind of freaked out by this because no one would have known this. Remember, like who had favor and who was born in what time was kind of a mess here in the story of Genesis, right? But they're lined up perfectly and Joseph has them seated in this pattern. But It's not the head of the table. It's not the one who's supposed to get the blessing and the birthright who gets the blessing in this scenario. As food comes and as the party wears on, food is sent from Joseph's table, not to the leader of the pack, not to Judah, not even to Reuben, but to Benjamin. Benjamin's portion is huge. It's five times the amount of portion of any other guy's plate. And so what Joseph is doing here, he's setting up a scenario to see whether or not these brothers are going to revert to their old ways. Are these brothers going to give back in to these patterns of jealousy and hate? Are they going to give in to their previous things that they've already proved themselves, they have the capacity to do? And thankfully, they do not. Like, this is a happy day. This is a happy ending, at least for now, right? In the end of chapter 43 here, it's great. It says at the end of this, uh, and they drank and they were merry with him. I mean, that, that's a code word for like, they got lit. Like, this is like a fun party. They were, they were hanging out. They were, they, were, they were having a good time. They're eating good food, drinking good drink. This was a fun time. Like, let's just close the book. Jesus is awesome. Let's go home, right? End of sermon. No. Again, we are invited into this. And what the story is supposed to do for us is hold up a mirror to ourselves and say, so that we can ask the question, how do we react in, position, in times where other people are receiving blessing? Can we celebrate the wins of others? How do we respond when others receive blessing we don't? Normally, do we live out of a posture of contentment or one of jealousy and comparison? And I'd argue, in the world that we live in, it's kind of hard not to. See, the answers to all of those questions reveal a lot about our hearts. Uh, it's something we say around here at Veritas all the time is that it's, it's, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. So all of us come into the room this morning. When it comes to this topic of jealousy and comparison and all of that, we all come in here. If we're honest, we're all not okay. To some degree or other, we have fallen prey to comparing ourselves with someone else, comparing ourselves to another Man or woman or family or person's job or, uh, you know, you go on Facebook and Instagram, it's just one constant doom scroll of, look at me, isn't my life awesome? You should want what I have. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it's set up to do. And what do we do with that? We just doom scroll the whole lot of it, right? We have like social media hangover. Have you guys experienced this where you've like sat on your phone for more? You're like, whoa, where did that 15 minutes go? I can't believe I just gave myself to Facebook or Instagram or whatever, just doing this, watching all of those videos. It's what we do. See, we look at others' blessings and we begin to have emotions towards those other people, begin to subtly hate them or believe the lie that God is holding out on us. Because people have something we we don't. In church, it's the same lie offered by the enemy in the beginning. Like at the beginning of Genesis, this was the same lie, that the snake comes to the woman and says, you know, you could have more. You know, you might not be enough. You could be like God. God's holding out on you is the lie that the snake gives to the woman in the very beginning. And we take part in the same lie. We're still offered it every single day, the lie of, man, God's holding out on you in this area of your life. You should be jealous. You should give in to those desires. See, the only cure for jealousy, the only cure for this lie is the gospel itself. See, the gospel is the only means that we are empowered. It empowers us to actually celebrate others and celebrate one another's wins, one another's successes, one another's blessings, because life isn't a rat race. We don't have to climb every corporate ladder that we're faced with. We don't have to climb every mountain on the East Coast in order to be a satisfied person, to be a whole person. We don't have to have those things because we already have Jesus in the gospel. It's precisely the gospel that allows us to accept our reality, whatever it is, and learn to live in it with contentment. See, if you're okay with yourself, you can actually celebrate others if you're satisfied in your own reality that Christ has won you, he has bought you, he has brought you to himself, and he's given you everything, riches, in in all the highest places, like Ephesians says, you can celebrate others. See, in Jesus, we are granted not only hope in the gospel that we get everything eventually, but we are granted through the Holy Spirit of God now the opportunity to be able to rejoice in sorrow sing in our pain and trust in the midst of what it looks like hopelessness. We get to be happy for others who have it better than us because we know we're already getting better than what we deserve in the gospel. We deserve the righteous wrath of God for our sin, but that's not what we get in the gospel. We get union with Christ. We get our sins covered over. We get Uh, brought into the family of God, we get the blessings of of, of a future eternity with God where there is no more tears, where there is no more fear of loss, where there is no more uh, lack of hope in any sense, and we get that eternally. See, God is not holding out on us. He has given us everything in the person and work, Jesus, to church Where do you feel like God is holding out on you? Maybe he feels like, you feel like God is holding out on you in the sense of loss that you've walked in in your life. Like Jacob, you're fearing more loss in your life. Whether that's loss of life of loved ones, or maybe that's the loss of friendships, maybe it's the loss of the things that you have, your material possessions. God's not holding out on you. God has granted you to be brought into the family of God and have everything in Jesus. Maybe you're like the brothers. You feel like God is holding out on you in blessing. Or you're looking around and there's, there's, there's this one person in your life and it seems like they're receiving five times as much of the blessing as you are. And you're tempted to give in and say, man, can't, God, why don't I get that? Why don't I get to have that? Why don't you bless me that way? Church, God is not holding out on you. He isn't. Maybe you feel like you, you feel like Joseph in this story, where there's this relational tension, and, and you, you want to trust. You, you want to have this full reconciliation with this other party, but trust takes time to regain. You got to live in that relational tension for a while and see if these parties are going to prove themselves to not be who they once were. You got to live in that relational tension, but. God is not holding out on Joseph here and he's not holding out on you either. See, we can live in contentment with our circumstances like Jacob, like the brothers, like Joseph because we can trust that God is merciful. God has been merciful to us because even if loss does come, death is not the end. Resurrection is coming for us. In 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 everything that like if you're if you're hoping for material possessions, and, and and you look around at everything else around us, and it's not coming for you, you can trust that everything in your life is a gift, and God's love isn't dependent on your own giftedness. See, we can celebrate others, and we can be honest with God where we don't understand. We can bring those things before Him. He's not scared of our questions. Finally, we can rest in the truth that reconciliation has already happened in Jesus. 2 Corinthians tells us that it's already happened in Jesus. It's just whether or not we are actively walking in it right now. See, unity for followers of Jesus, all followers of Jesus that will be united to him forever for all time has already been accomplished by Jesus. How could it not be? Unity is a certainty, just not immediate for us. So there's a lot of sanctification that's got to happen between now, where we're at right now, and heaven. So church, if you're feeling like in some way that God is holding out on you, whether it's in loss, blessing, or any tension you have in your life, know God has an answer for you in that place of tension. He's already spoken to the word of his son. And the word of his son is that he has already granted to you everything you could ever need. Let me pray that we would believe that. Lord Jesus, as we come to you in a time of response, um, God, may we be honest with you. Let us actually believe this morning it's okay to not be okay. Um, God, may, we, um, may there be hands extended in prayer to our, uh, towards others this morning. God, may some of us need to turn to our neighbors and um, ask for forgiveness and walk in relational um, unity with one another. God, may folks come uh, to the pastors and other leaders at the back of the room and ask for prayer for the places that feel broken and hopeless in their life. God, may we be an encouragement for one another in vocalizing our own need, in vocalizing the places where we don't get it right, vocalizing the places where we do need the hope of the gospel. God, that's good news that we come needy and hungry this morning, broken, and ready to receive the mercy and grace that only you offer. God, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to come to the table to receive, may we remember that's all we can do at this table. We don't come to this table with anything that's going to add anything to it. We come with our sin. We come with our brokenness. And you meet us with your grace and your mercy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.